This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me on our program, Issues in Perspective. We have a full program today, a number of very important issues we'd like to address, many which we do not address very much on Issues in Perspective. And you will see that right away as we look at perspective number one, a biblical theology of sex. Years ago, my wife and I watched a movie based on a famous book by Boris Pasternak entitled Dr. Zhivago. The movie, Dr. Zhivago, made in 1965, is a spectacularly gorgeous movie. It's in Russia, and the scenery of Russia in the winter is breathtaking. It's stunning. And the movie is set during the tumultuous years of the Bolshevik Revolution that swept Russia from 1917 to 1920. As the forces of Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov, who took the name Lenin, ravaged the country of Russia, the Bolsheviks killed, pillaged, and destroyed as they built their communist utopia in Russia. Dr. Zhivago, a medical doctor, is caught in this tumult. And when he returns from the front, World War I, he finds his home ransacked and now occupied by 13 families. Bolshevik Revolution. But the movie, Dr. Zhivago, is really not about the Bolshevik Revolution. It's a love story. Actually, as writer Andreas Hsu comments, it was the first film to make adultery beautiful. This movie is powerful, and it's seductive. It portrays Dr. Zhivago's wife, Tanya, as neutral, almost a boring figure in the movie. And there's little focus, actually, on their son, either, who only to establish Javago as a good father. The son is never depicted as crying himself to sleep. As Dr. Javago deepens his adulterous relationship with his lover, Laura, there are no lingering shots of the son or of the wife. Daddy is a good daddy. As Sue argues, quote, the goal of the movie is that the audience should fall in love with the doctor and his mistress and not only forgive, but actually root for their love affair. His wife, Tanya, sends Zhivago a letter in which she declares she has no hard feelings. She and her father are going to Paris for safety, so they'll be fine. The doctor responds with some grief, but not much. Zhivago and his mistress Laura then volunteer for the army to serve. They're good people, and their love deepens for one another. Fate seems to have brought them together, and although they are caught in the trauma of the Bolshevik Revolution, their love is right, their love is secure. Andreas Sue comments, By the time David Lean, the director of Dr. Zhivago the movie, was done with me, she writes, God was a scowling moralist a pinprick of light in a faraway galaxy. And you would think that all the best things on earth, daffodils, snow-sculpted minarets, and songs, songs were the gifts given under the sun. Captivating, seductive, and beautiful are the emotionally laden words that summarize the viewer's response to this powerful movie. 
we find ourselves approving that which God finds abominable. As I read Sue's essay on this remarkable movie, I was convinced of the need for a biblical view of sex, a theology of sex, if you will. And in this perspective, I seek to establish just that. First of all, permit me as well a few comments about a recent essay from the religion writer of Newsweek magazine, Lisa Miller. Miller's essay is really a summary of two books about sex in the Bible, Michael Coogan's God, Sex, What the Bible Really Says, and Jennifer Wright Canoose's Unprotected Text, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire. Miller reaches four conclusions from her study of these two books. One, the Bible is an ancient text inapplicable to the particulars of the modern world. Two, sex in the Bible is sometimes hidden. Three, that which is forbidden is also allowed. And four, accepted interpretations of the Bible are sometimes wrong. In a very real sense, as Miller summarizes these books, much of what Coogan and Kuninst are arguing is not all that new or provocative. Both of them, but perhaps more intensely Canoose, follow the standard theologically liberal stance when it comes to the Bible and sex. The Bible is not the Word of God, they argue. When it talks about sex, the text merely reflects the presuppositions, prejudices, and ideas of its various authors. The Bible is simply not the objective Word of God. The challenge is that the typical Christian is not as enlightened, and I put that words in quotation marks, as the liberal scholar about the Bible. Many still think the Bible is God's Word. With that said, Coogan and especially Canoost see the Bible as a book filled with errors and contradictions and no consistent ethic or theology of sex. And that's why the theologian Albert Muller correctly captures the essence of what Coogan, Canoost, and Lisa Miller are arguing. Quote, Consider the audacity of their claim. They claim that no one has rightly understood the Bible for over 2,000 years. No Jewish or no Christian interpreter of the Bible has ever suggested, for example, that the relationship between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament was homosexual. Knutz does, at least not until recent decades. The revisionist case is equally ludicrous across the board. Only now are we able to understand what Paul is really talking about in Romans 1. The church has been wrong for over 2,000 years. The Bible does, in fact, present a clear and consistent ethic and theology of sex. The problem with so many recent revisionist and liberal theologians is that they both revile and reject that ethic and that theology. And that, dear people, is the real issue when it comes to books like this and even what Lisa Miller is trying to do in her article. So we have to ask, is there a theology of sex, a sexual ethic, that can be discerned from the Bible? In my judgment, and that's what I want to defend, the answer is incontrovertibly yes. Stanton L. Jones, the provost at Wheaton College, has written masterfully about this 
and I want to summarize his work in presenting a theology of sex rooted in God's Word. Without a theology of sex, without a sexual ethic, we are, in the words of theologian David Bentley Hart, first and foremost heroic and insatiable consumers, and must not allow the specters of transcendent law or personal guilt to render us decisive in our sexual activity. For us, it is a choice itself, and not what we choose. That's the first good. This obsession with autonomy, a law unto ourselves, consumes the person of the 21st century who has no transcendent standards. Sexuality becomes the foundation of our personal identity and our pursuit of selfish, self-centered pleasure. But there is a powerful, truthful vision of sexuality that is not about selfishness, not about self-centered pleasure. It's not all wrapped around our personal identity. Let me summarize Stanton Jones's theology of sex. It has six major components to it. One, we are embodied. To be a human being is to be a physical, biological creature. Christians view all of physical existence, from the grandeur of the cosmos to the particularity of the human body, as a good creation of a benevolent God. Physical existence is not divine, but it is good. And we are more than bodies, but we are bodies. And we will live forever as a soul-body unit in our glorified, resurrected bodies. Two, we are sexual beings. We are gendered, and we are sexual beings. Genesis declares that God's creation of gendered people is his divine purpose, with both sexes made in the image of God and humanity corporately, male and female, declared to be very good. And indeed, then Scripture extols the physical pleasures of sexual union. You see that in Proverbs 5. And it links eroticism, especially with romantic love and intimacy. My goodness, you see that in the Song of Songs by Solomon. The Apostle Paul sternly admonishes married couples to fulfill one another's sexual needs and does so in a remarkably egalitarian fashion. You see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 6. Our sexuality is expressed in but not reduced to the sexual experiences of marriage. All persons are fully sexual as gendered beings with uniquely male, female bodies, being with sensations, desires, and gender-grounded emotional and cognitive capacities. Gender is only one facet of sexuality, and gender itself is a construct with many biological, psychological, emotional, and relational dimensions. That's a quotation for Dr. Stanton Jones. We're not only embodied, we have a physical body. We're not only sexual beings, we are relational beings. Genesis teaches us to think of human nature as fundamentally relational. Even though Adam lived in a perfect environment, God declared it was not good for him to be alone. So God created a perfect partner, a complement in every way to him. And romantic love, as with Adam and Eve, and you see it in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, became an important way that the relational reality of being human was experienced. That is still true today. We're not only embodied, we have a body, we're not only sexual beings, we're not only relational beings, 
We are made in God's image, number four. The way Genesis 5 mirrors the language of Genesis 1, and following is stunning. The conception and birth of a son to our primal parents, Adam and Eve, parallels the way God fathered, quote, unquote, the first humans. God's image can not only be reduced to simple procreation, but the act of human procreation is somehow part of what it means to be in the image and likeness of God. We're embodied, we're sexual beings, we're relational beings, we're made in God's image. But unfortunately, we are broken and twisted beings. Our sexual longings are grounded in our good capacities for union, love, and pleasure, but they are always tainted with selfishness, sensuality, and the desire to dominate. That is why we so often experience a deep sense of conflict in our sexuality. We know the beauty and the potential and realized good of our sexual natures, but often we don't experience that good in a pure, distilled way. We live in a fallen world, and our brokenness, our twistedness, means that so often the purity of what God wants in the sexual dimension of our lives is not realized because we are sinners. And in a world that does not recognize God and refuses to live under his authority, that world will never see the sexual dimension in the way God wants it to be seen. That's the reality of this theology of sex. But there's one final element. We encounter objective reality when we have sex. Sexual intercourse creates a one sex union. You are in the process of becoming one, Genesis 2.24 says. In the creation ordinance, Christ's teaching on divorce, and pitiful passages like 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 teach us that God made sexual intercourse to create and sustain a permanent one-flesh union in a male-female married couple. The fact that intercourse creates a one-flesh union profoundly challenges our individualism, Jones says. We learn from Paul that marriage union testifies to something bigger than itself. We see that in Ephesians 5.32, where Paul says after this powerful discourse and the role of the man and the role of the woman in marriage says, I'm speaking a mystery. What I'm speaking is about Christ in the church. I'll never forget when I first studied that, what in the world is Paul saying there, I ask? Well, all Christians participate in a mystical body, the body of Christ. And the consummation of history is not the redemption of a gaggle of individuals, but a marriage between the bridegroom lamb and his collective singular bride, the church. Dear people, there is more to sex than meets the eye. Paul seems to be saying in Ephesians 5.32 to us that when you see a man and a woman in a God-honoring marriage, fulfilling their roles according to how Paul has laid it out, you see a perfect picture, an archetype, a metaphor, a model of how Christ relates to his church. Dear people, there's more to marriage. There's more to sex 
and meets the eye. The Christian vision of personhood means that true self, true understanding of who we are, is something discovered and formed. Proper self-formation occurs when our self is submitted to God, who transforms us as we obey his revealed will and we abide in the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A self that is only discovered is an undeveloped and impoverished self. Jones writes, a self that is discovered and then formed in the joyful, painful, humbling, intimate process of celebrating the gift of sexuality God has given, dying to oneself, living in obedience to God, is the true, real, powerful, energized self that honors God. Dear people, we need a theology of sex. We need a sexual ethic that is liberating, that is freeing. And dear people, there is only one entity on planet Earth that can teach and model that, and it's the church. The Church of Jesus Christ, especially the Church of Jesus Christ in North America, must create what in effect is a counterculture, running against what the culture is teaching and doing and saying and modeling and living. What has happened to sex in America especially is we have idolatrized it, (laughs) if that's a verb. We have in effect made it the core of our identity, and that's not the core of our identity. We have a body created by God. We are relational beings. We are sexual beings. We are created in his image. But we're twisted and fallen, and we need Jesus, who then corrects, soothes, encourages, and enables a man and woman to be all that God wants them to be in all dimensions of their marriage, but especially in the sexual dimension. It is only the Church of Jesus Christ that can truly model, teach, and live that theology of sex. Dr. Zhivago is not the answer. The Bible is the answer. In our second and final perspective on the program today, I thought I would think with you briefly about faithful stewards of God's resources. In preparation for a recent conference at which I was to speak, I was studying Matthew six nineteen through 24. Among other things in this passage, Jesus is clearly asking his followers to have an investment strategy, one that balances investment for the future with investment for eternity. Material wealth, he argues, is not evil, but it is transitory. It can deteriorate. It can be stolen, Jesus says. Not so with an investment for eternity. One of my favorite writers, Randy Alcorn, has written, quote, Whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. Close that quote. In Matthew six twenty-two and 23, Jesus challenges his followers to have a vision for eternity, one with clarity of purpose and focus. Such people live for eternity, not the moment. This kind of vision comes from uncompromising loyalty to Jesus. What a liberating way to live. Such a view of material things is actually rooted in the concept of stewardship. 
humans have dominion status over God's world. As the creator, God has sovereign status. As stewards, we are therefore accountable to him who owns everything. And the primary responsibility of a steward is faithfulness. What God entrusts to us must be managed well. I find it interesting in the Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, there's a word group, and we translate that word economy or economics. It's oikonomus, oikonomus, and oikonomeo. All of those are words for stewardship, but we translate it into English, actually transliterate it as economy or economics. Well, economics is about stewardship. That's something we've missed. A.W. Tozer writes four questions about what we think in terms of what we treasure and stewardship. What do you value most? What would you most hate to lose? What do our thoughts turn to? Most frequently, we're free to think of what we will and what affords us the greatest pleasure. For that reason, perhaps, Jesus cuts to the heart of stewardship in verse 21 of Matthew 6. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus, in effect, is saying, show me your checkbook, show me your credit card statements, show me your receipts for cash expenditures, and I'll show you where your heart is. His point is clearly that we should put our resources, our assets, our money, our possessions into the things of God. Our perspective will always be an eternal one. For that reason, Jesus lays down the gauntlet in verse 24. Choose a life wasted in the singular pursuit of wealth on earth, or choose a life invested in the pursuit of wealth in heaven. You cannot serve mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word for money. You cannot serve mammon and God. You must choose. A few concluding thoughts on this perspective, faithful steward of God's resources. One, as Christians, we live with tremendous tension. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, John seventeen thirteen through 18. But we're not ascetics. We don't live a life, we're not called to live a life of self-denial just to merit God's favor. We should enjoy the material things God gives us. 1 Timothy 4, 4 teaches us that. But we balance this goodness of God's material gifts with their transitory nature. They will deteriorate. They can even be stolen. But everything we do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 teaches us, everything we do has eternal significance. And for that reason, we always live with eternity in view. There's nothing exempt from that vision. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is a liberating way to live in my judgment. And that is a liberating premise for how we think about the material possessions that God gives us. Even our material possessions can be used for the glory of God with an eternity in mind framework. May God bless you as you process and think about both of these dimensions of a Christian worldview that was the subject of the program today, a theology of sex and managing, being good stewards of the resources God gives us. May God bless each one of you. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry at Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.